This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're talking about real estate investing in Europe and specifically how tech's changing the way cities look physically, from retail stores to office buildings to student housing and much, much more. We're at the London office of Goldman Sachs, and I'm joined today by Jim Garman, who is the global co-head of the Merchant Bank Division Real Estate Group and head of MBD Real Estate in Europe. So he runs real estate investing for the Merchant Bank in Europe and globally. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jake. You look at real estate not the way some of us do, but you look at it from an investor point of view. Yep. And how do you see pockets of value in Europe today? And what does the environment look like in the wake of the financial crisis 10 years ago? In our business, we invest across both the US and in Europe. And in Europe, it's a lower growth, more fragmented, more dislocated market, higher barriers to entry to build new product. That environment continues to serve up quite interesting investing opportunities for us. If I think about today versus after the financial crisis, when we came out of the financial crisis in Europe, an awful lot of real estate assets ended up in the hands of people for whom those assets were non-core. If you think of banks who had a lot of non-performing loans, there were funds who were at the end of the investment period, so these assets now had to be liquidated. And even governments, particularly in Ireland and Spain, had to form organizations to resolve some of these problem assets. So back then, the investing opportunity was really to provide capital to those types of organizations so they could release those assets. People like us and others would take them on, try and reposition them, improve the operations, sometimes make some strategic interventions to improve the assets, and sell them on to more natural long-term owners of those properties. That situation still persists. Even now, 10 years after the crisis, there are still plenty of opportunities to invest in those types of impaired assets. But the big shift we've seen in the past, say, three to four years, is that in many of the major cities in Europe, one of the impacts of the financial crisis was that credit was less available for developers to build new product. And as a result, we've seen in many cities in Europe an undersupply of appropriate, modern, good quality accommodation that companies and people want to office in or, or live in. And so now we see an opportunity for investors to team up with those types of developers and create that new product. So we've moved from a post-crisis value investing opportunity to more of a growth-oriented opportunity. Jim, on Brexit, the big delta will probably be here in the UK. But how do you think about what the impact will be on the continent, particularly in some of the other potential financial centers? Yeah, so I would say right after the Brexit referendum, there was a lot of talk and activity about cities like Frankfurt, Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, trying to attract companies from London who would need to move as a result of Brexit. Some of that is happening. There are companies who will need to move. Our own firm will move some jobs. I think the beneficiaries of that are really Frankfurt, Paris, and I also should have mentioned Dublin. But I think the amount of people that are going to move is perhaps less than was originally thought. And so although it's helpful for those markets, I don't think it's going to be a major impact in terms of changing the nature of their real estate markets. You mentioned this briefly, but let's focus on how tech is reshaping cities in real estate. As technology reshapes really every industry, what kinds of buildings are needed? And when do you really start to observe the connection between the tech revolution yeah. and its impact on real estate? There are three broad impacts. One is how people use buildings. So how people, for example, use office buildings. The fact that people who work in office buildings, they're much more mobile and agile today. You need a smartphone or a tablet or a laptop, good Wi-Fi access, a bit of power 
and access to the cloud, and you can really work anywhere. So it's made the workforce who are in the service industry much more mobile, and that's changing the way people are using office space. The second thing is what type of properties are needed, and the big example of this is in the retail versus logistics theme, where because of the impact of online shopping, there's less demand for bricks and mortar high street shops and much greater demand for logistics assets. So there's been a shift there. And then I think the third thing, which is really just beginning, is the way that property assets are intermediated and transacted. We're seeing the development of online marketplaces for real estate. We've seen it in the residential space, companies like Zillow in the US or Rightmove or Zoopla in the UK. And I think we'll see more of that in commercial property over time. And then I think we'll see disruption to the way that properties get transacted. You know, Transacting properties today is still quite a laborious, time-consuming and expensive process. And as technologies evolve, things like smart contracts and so on, that will make transacting property quicker, more accurate and cheaper. And I think it's just inevitable that those changes will come. Let's go back and talk a little bit more about retail. Cities typically still have lots of storefronts and lots of shopping areas. How's tech changing the need for stores, or do stores look a little different? Talk a little bit about the impact of what's been called the death of high street. Yeah. It's a timely conversation. If you look at online shopping in the UK, this year it reached almost 20% of all online sales. It's the highest in the world. In Europe, it's a bit less. So in France and Germany, it's more like 10 to 11%. Spain and Italy a little bit lower, sort of high single digits, but it's growing everywhere. Even in the UK, it's about 20% today. Five years ago, it was only 10%. So we've seen this massive, rapid change in the way people shop. That's having a real impact on retailers, because what's happening, obviously, is that less people are going to the physical stores. Footfall on the high street in the UK is down about 10%. And so it's impacting the revenues that the traditional retailers can generate. In the UK, there's a particular issue that the fixed costs of these retailers, the leases they have to sign for their retail properties, retailers would say the rents are too high. The business taxes, they're called business rates that retailers have to pay, the retailers would argue those are too high. And so it's making the traditional retailing model unprofitable. There have been a whole series of quite high profile administrations of retailers in the UK over the past 10 years. I think about 34 or 35 major names in the retail space in the UK have gone into administration. That has meant about 13,000 stores have closed. It's meant about 180,000 job losses. And one of the most staggering parts of that analysis is that of those 30 or so administrations, about 10 happened right after the financial crisis when the UK was in recession. But about 10 happened in 2018 when the UK is meant to be doing reasonably well. So you can really see the impact of the technology on that What's timely about this is only last week the UK Parliament put out a report talking about how they see the high street of 2030, so 10 years from now. And they made the comment that they really feel like the the UK retail high street is at a tipping point where if nothing's done, we really are going to get into a place where many high streets' death is probably a bit strong, but they're going to become not great places to be around. What kind of demand does the e-commerce business need? You mentioned it briefly, but what does that logistics demand look like, and how's that popping up in the market? It's almost a mirror image of what we're seeing in the retail space. So in logistics, and this is true in North America and all around Europe, but again, I'll use the UK as an example, we've seen the demand for good quality logistics properties for the past three to four years has been up about 30% on what it was previously. What that is doing is making logistics companies compete more for logistics properties that are being built. 
there is not enough logistics facilities around the UK. The vacancy rate in logistics is now about 5%, which is quite low. And as a result, as these different companies compete for that space, we're seeing rents start to go up. And what that has meant is that logistics has become a very in-favor asset class for investors, because if they can see cash flows that they think are going to grow, then they like that, whereas retail has become a very out-of-favor asset class at the moment. What do those facilities look like and where are they? As High Street experiences a slow death, where is the boom happening? This is the complex part of all this. Traditionally, you would say that a big, modern logistics facility in the UK, again, as an example, would sit in what we call the Golden Triangle, which is the area between the M1 and the M6 in the middle of the country where distributing around the country is easiest. One of the trends we're seeing now in a buzzword in real estate is last mile logistics. And I think what's happening is because of the success of firms like Amazon, consumer expectations around delivery are going up and up all the time. So a few years ago, if you wanted to order a book or a pair of running shoes on Amazon, you'd be satisfied if it came three or four days later. Nowadays, people want it the same day or the following same morning. Hour, yeah. The same hour. And yeah. so physically, the logistics hub that set on the big transportation nodes are not close enough to deliver with that same day type delivery. And so what we're seeing a trend in is in urban area logistics facilities being created. They're either conversions of existing assets or new assets. And the difficult part of this for investors is this is changing so quickly. The way in which consumer demands are changing, the way in which the speed and and sort of technology around delivery is evolving, it's very hard today, I think, to look at a logistics facility and be sure that that is the right type of facility that a logistics operator will want five or 10 years from now. So I think you have to be very careful to make sure your asset is future-proof and can be adjusted as the needs change. You talked a little bit about stores, been briefly about offices, but let's talk a little bit more about the office building and trends there. How has technology and the ability of employees to work remotely changed the way people think about their offices and think about offices, particularly in expensive center cities like London? Offices still exist. People still want to work in corporate communities. Corporate culture is very important. So I think the idea that everybody's going to work from home, I'm not a buyer of that kind of idea. I think companies will still want office space. And some things have not changed. Companies still want office space that is well-located near good transportation hubs so their staff can get to the building. They want it in a vibrant part of the city they're in so the surrounding amenities are good for their employees. They want buildings that are energy efficient and sustainable. That's not really new. That's been going for some time. What is new is that the way that people can operate within these buildings, again, because the access to technology has meant people can use high-speed Wi-Fi, laptops, in the cloud, they don't need all the paraphernalia that used to go with being in an office. So one change I think is happening is that the need for physical infrastructure in an office for somebody's workstation is diminishing. So you don't need a big desk with a big desktop computer and a big phone and big storage space for all of your files. That's all going. People are using smaller workstations. There's much more mobility within offices. People can move around. What that means is that companies can dedicate more of their office space to more community areas where People can get together, talk about ideas, talk about problem solving. So it's a much more collaborative, more mobile type office environment than we've previously had. So when we talk about real estate investing, we often focus on the big cities, London, Paris, New York. What about smaller and less expensive cities? Are those becoming hubs for some companies? You know, how do you think about the markets in in some of the second tier cities? Yeah, that's a big thing. We've seen that in the US and we're seeing it in Europe as well. You know, the traditional big gateway cities are becoming more congested and more expensive, we're seeing corporations and enterprises move to other cities which are smaller, 
have a lower cost base and in some cases easier to live in. And so in, in the US, if you look at the growth in cities like Austin or Denver or Nashville, Charlotte's another one, there are big major corporations moving to these areas because they have certain features. They have very good quality universities, so a very large, young, well-educated workforce. The, the cost of housing is lower, the cost of office space is lower, and because they're smaller cities, they have more walkability, as they like to call it, so it's easier to get around and it's a nicer place to be. And we're seeing a similar pattern in Europe. If you take Berlin, you take Amsterdam, you take Milan, you take Barcelona, Lisbon, Porto, these are all places where companies are moving to because they have these types of features, big universities, good ploy base, relatively lower cost. And even in the UK, Manchester... Birmingham, Leeds, Glasgow, they all have these similar traits. You talked about the importance of university and good education. Obviously, students need places to live. Yeah. Student housing has been a theme for some investors. How is student housing changing? How are the demands changing there? Yeah. And what are the demographics behind that? The overall demand for university education is going up. So the penetration rate, the number of young people going to university is going up. In the UK, it's gone up from 30% to 40% in the last 10 years. So more younger people are going to university. The total aggregate number of students going to university is at an all-time high. And the other big trend is the number of students choosing to go to university outside of the country of origin is going up. So, for example, Chinese or Indian students going to the UK or to the US for education, that's at an all-time high. So you've got this very big demand driver of students going to these high-quality universities. And not being able to live at home. They can't live at home. Traditional forms of accommodation, if you take the UK, traditionally it would be either the university's own halls of residence or it would be students ganging together and renting up a house together. Those still are important sources of accommodation for students, but there isn't enough. And so what we've seen the emergence of in, in many markets, including the UK, is what we call PBSA or purpose-built student accommodation. And these are buildings which are anywhere from, let's say, 50 to 500 units for students. They're designed specifically for the student population, so they have different types of units. They have smaller ensuite units, some students want a bigger unit, some students want to live together in what we call a cluster flat, which is where there'll be five or six rooms all clustering around a kitchen and a living area. So the accommodation itself is designed for students, the amenities are designed for students, there is study space, social space, fitness and sports areas and so on. These are safe, they're secure, they're located near the universities, and they're at an affordable price point. And so that type of accommodation has become a more attractive opportunity or place to live for many of these students. And what we're seeing the emergence of is what was 15 years ago a fairly fragmented industry has really become a very high-quality, institutionally-led marketplace where there are some big companies running these student housing operations really efficiently, really well, and really customer-focused. Sounds like a good time to be a student. I should go back it's to school. a good time to be a student. Uh, another trend you mentioned, on the, as long as we're on demographics, is aging population. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. true all over developed economies, yeah. Japan, the U.S., but certainly Europe. How is the fact that we just have more people retiring, more people living longer, changing real estate markets in cities, and how are investors yeah. thinking about that? It's sort of similar to the student thing in that there's not enough housing that is appropriate for the aging population. And what I mean by that is, again, if you take London as example, the demand for that time of accommodation is going up. I think there are 1 million people above retirement age in London at the moment. The forecasts show that's going to double in the next, I think, 20 years. 
but a lot of people, as they, they're retired and they're getting older, they stay living in their, what was their family home. The children have now left. And so they're now in a, in a home that may be too big. It may not be sort of fit for purpose given their needs as they age. And so what people want is a facility that is easier to get around if they have mobility issues. It has good amenities, good sort of hospitality services, and good care services, particularly if they have medical issues. Those things don't really exist. There are only one or two a couple of years ago. In London, it's a new industry that is developing. There are a number of groups, operators and developers, are starting to build this type of facility. But the recent draft London plan, which is reorganizing the planning regime and planning ideas for London, has prescribed that there need to be about 4,000 of these units built every year for the next 10 years. We're nowhere near that. So there's a chronic undersupply of this type of facility. And it's not just true in London. It's true in all the major cities around the world. People who have grown up in these cities, they want to stay in the cities, but there isn't the appropriate accommodation for them. And the other problem you get, which is more a social problem, is that you get a logjam where people, because they, they don't have an appropriate facility to go to, they stay living in their large townhouse, which may not be appropriate for them. And the people who want to live there can't live there because they're there. They yeah, can't so. live there. And I saw some numbers recently that said that if all people above 65 moved into more appropriate accommodation, it would release 175,000 family homes in London and a huge amount of wealth. And at the moment, people can't move. It's not because they don't want to move, but it's because the appropriate accommodation is not available. So I think this is a growing sector. It's been growing in markets like Australia and New Zealand. It's growing in the U.S. It's growing in Japan. And I think it'll grow here. So obviously, there's been a big turnaround in property prices in a couple places in Europe, pretty dramatic. Bounce back yeah. in Spain and yeah, Ireland. Yeah. And what, what's been yeah. driving that? Again, if you go back to the financial crisis, Spain and Ireland were probably two of the most dramatically hit markets in terms of the collapse in real estate prices. In Ireland, property prices were down about 50% in the years following the crisis. Spain was down, about, I think, about 40%. There were other markets too, Portugal, Italy, the UK. All Most markets had problems, but those markets were probably the most acute. And then we saw a phase from sort of 2010 to 2012, 13, 14, where these economies start to recover. You remember that many of these markets had support from the European Union. A lot of the banks were reconstituted and, and resolved. There were various political actions to make these economies more competitive, make the labor market more productive and freer. And so gradually over time, these economies started to reset themselves and started to grow again. And real estate always lags GDP growth. And once you start to get positive GDP growth, you start to get a real estate recovery, particularly if, as I talked about earlier, there's been an undersupply of new product. So we've seen a dramatic recovery in Ireland. Prices having fallen 50%, they're backed within sort of 10 to 15% of their previous peak. And the same in Spain, it's recovering quite well. Back then, I remember that you know, one of the big questions was, could countries like Ireland and Spain, who are part of the European Union and part of the euro, and therefore in a fixed currency regime, unlike the UK, they couldn't devalue their currency. So they had to restructure within a fixed currency regime, which is very difficult to do. And I think, looking back, I think most people have been pretty amazed at how they've been able to do that. Without being able to deflate their own currency. Yeah. One trend that gets a lot of attention in the U.S., but they have a big presence here, is the new entrance into the real yeah. estate market like WeWork yeah. and others. Talk a little bit about what's driving that trend and how you see that playing out in Europe. It's similar to what we just talked about within the way people use office buildings. Because people don't need 
the physical infrastructure they used to need in an office building. They're much more mobile with their technology and so on. That's fostered this whole idea of co-working where small companies or growing companies or even individuals can go and work in a building that is operated by a co-working operator like a WeWork where they're in an environment, they get really good quality of space, they get to interact with other people who are doing similar things, and most importantly, it's for very flexible arrangements. One of the problems with real estate generally for growing companies is you have to sign a lease and commit to a building if you want to occupy it. Depending on which market you're in, that lease can be anywhere from one year to 10 or 20 years. What WeWork allows, and this whole co-working idea allows companies to do, is have a lot of flexibility. They can breathe in and out depending on the size of the company. It's also useful for bigger enterprises who might want some flexible space, If particularly companies who are very project-based. If they're working on a project in a particular market, they may not want to sign a lease on a new building for a couple of years because they're only going to be there for six months, but they can take space in a WeWork type of operation. It's just a much more flexible way of working. WeWork, what they've done is incredible. They're now, I think, the biggest occupier in New York, or one of the biggest in London. So you travel to a lot of cities. You're investing uh, for the long term. As you look ahead the next 10 years, what city that you spend some time in do you think will change the most? We'll see whether it's still in Europe or not, but I think London is undergoing the most dramatic transformation at the moment. There have been a number of major infrastructure events which have transformed London. We had the Olympics here in 2012, which really regenerated large parts of East London. We've had the Crossrail project, which is building a new west-east rail line, which is a major infrastructure project. Those are changing the nature of the city. And then there's been a massive building boom all along the south of the riverbank of the Thames, all the way from sort of West London through to East London. And so a skyline down the river, which 20 years ago was built on the north side, but not so built up on the south side, is becoming really built up on the south side. Now, a lot of those projects are still underway. Not all of the apartments and office buildings are being used yet, but eventually, when they're all lit up at night, it's going to be a totally different panorama from west to east down the Thames. What's your favorite city to visit? In Europe, I'd say it's Berlin. I think Berlin is an incredible place. I've done business there. I've been there on holiday. And it is an incredibly vibrant city. It's gone through an incredible transformation, obviously, given its post-war period where it was a divided city, a single city that's split in two and two very different political regimes. With the wall coming down in 1989, 30 years ago, it's gone through a couple of boom and bust cycles as it's tried to recover. But now being the capital city, it's finally converging with the rest of Germany and becoming an established proper capital city. It's developing its own industry. It's got a big tech industry there, big art scene, big social scene. And it's got some very interesting modern history behind it, which sort of dictates its culture. Also a little less densely populated than some other major yeah. European yeah, it's cities. Not, it's not a big city. It feels city, it, yeah. you know, the na- nature is yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah, it's not a big city. It's easy to get around. But everywhere you go, you see the relics of the past, but you see the optimism of the future. So, Jim, you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about these issues. Yeah. When did you first get interest in real estate? What piqued your interest? It's from a young age. My dad was an architect, so I grew up in a house where real estate was talked about. I studied a degree called Land Economy at Cambridge University, which is a real estate-oriented degree. And when I left, I joined a chartered surveying firm, and soon after joined Goldman Sachs, and I've been here ever since. Do you get a chance to give something back? Yeah, I do, actually. I was up at Cambridge last week, and I do something every year which I enjoy, which is I go and do a guest lecture for the Land Economy. It's actually called the Real Estate Finance Department now. And we talk about a lot of the things we've been talking about today. 
And then I spend a day with the Cambridge rowing crew. I was a rower myself. This year is the 30th anniversary of one of my years. I raced in the Oxford Cambridge boat race, and I was watching this year's crew prepare for that, and it's always a great time. They want to hear from the older generations what it was like, and I tell them it was as hard back then as it is today. So, well, Great. Jim, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on March 6th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.